What's up, y'all? Coming to you live from my parents' house. We got episode six here of the Changavi After Show. I'm, of course, your host, Anuj Changavi, if you haven't already been told by the name of the show itself. Welcome to the After Show, the show that basically has all the thought, all my unfiltered thoughts on topics that weren't included in the actual Changavi show. So expect a much less professional, much less polished, raw, rawer version of my thoughts. So that's pretty much the intro to this show. For those of you that are new here, welcome in. Episode six. Let's get right into it. I got a whole list of topics to talk about, um, things that I wanted to talk about on the show, but I ended up getting cut for some reason or another. Uh, and I figured I'd end the show with a little NFC Championship prediction for the 49ers. So I felt like that was a good way to do it. So why not start with this really quickly? Hold on. My computer's being tweaky. Ah, okay, here we go. Optics. Optics this is the first thing I wanted to talk about before we got into anything. Optics. What does that mean to you? I'm going to be a teacher real quick. What does that mean to you, class? Okay, nah, for real. This topic was brought up because of the fact of a conversation slash yelling match, maybe a little bit of both, that I had with my dad the other day. If he's watching this, hi, dad. You're on the podcast, and I'm going to put you on blast. No, um, I had this conversation with my dad the other day. I just gotten a haircut. As you can tell, I just got one. Uh, congrats, Anuj. Do you deserve a medal for that? No. Um, but I just got a haircut, and we were driving home. And my dad was like, dude, now he was like, oh, so you finally got a haircut all snarky because I, you know, my hair had been growing out for a while. I needed to get a haircut. I said, yeah, you know, I just got one. And he's like, well, people are finally going to watch your podcast now that you actually look a little decent. Something along those lines. Maybe it wasn't that exact verbiage, but uh, you know how it is. And that got me thinking. I was like, dude, and I, I get mad. I got mad at my dad. I was like, you know what? Little do you know, my views have been going up, even with my long hair, even with my uh, potato of a camera, as one of my TikTok commenters called it. Uh, my views have been going up. So I think people are appreciating me for content. But to an extent, he does have a point. Okay, aesthetic is important. But I think aesthetic for me is not more so how I personally dress, because right now I'm in basketball shorts and a warrior shirt. I don't give a fuck. Um, but it's more so like camera quality and all of that. That's fine, right? We're going to improve the camera quality and stuff over time. Actually, the camera quality might be better here. I don't know, actually. Uh, we'll see when I actually go back and watch it because I tested, I'm testing something out. So let's see if it works. But my dad was saying, oh, people are, more people are going to watch your podcast now that you have a you know, nicer haircut and actually look decent. And I was like, okay, let's put it to the test. So I'm going to put this clip up on YouTube or Spotify or wherever, uh, TikTok, and see how many people watch this clip. Do you, are you going to watch my podcast because I look better or not? Let's see. Let's check the views at the end of this clip and we'll see. But honestly, though, like this got me thinking, dude. I just I don't appreciate like people and like not to call anybody out, but like people and like things that just like care about the way you artificially look on the outside. That to me doesn't matter. Like I don't care about how I dress. Like my best friends know I don't care. I'm not unhygienic. I mean, some of my, you know, close family thinks I am. I, I don't think so. I'm not unhygienic. I'm relatively like a normal person. I just don't like dressing up all nice. Like, here's the here's the logic I give. I don't hate on people that want to get the nicest product bags or, you know, want to go shopping every other weekend. That's your prerogative. You do whatever you want. If you enjoy dressing up, like, why should I hate on you? If you feel good wearing, you know, high heels and nice dresses or, you know, 
uh, a really nice suit or like a fitted sweater, like, yeah, by all means, go spend your money on that because it makes you feel good. What makes me feel good? No one bothers to ask because they just presume that nice clothes make everybody feel good. I don't like nice clothes. I really don't. I feel uncomfortable. I did speech and debate in high school for two and a half years and we wore suits every single time. And I just felt so out of my skin. This jackets were itchy. I didn't like dress shirts. Dress shoes suck. Like I felt, I felt shitty wearing that in the morning. Like that to me was just not fun. Like I did not like wearing suits, fancy clothes, any of that. Where I felt the most comfortable was wearing like really comfortable sweatpants and a hoodie and my jerseys and, you know, lounging around. That's loungewear is my fashion. That's what I like. That's what I appreciate. People who want to dress up all nice all the time, no hate. You do you. If that makes you feel good, then hell yeah, you do that. But I just don't like the hatred that people have like, oh, you're not dressed up nicely. Oh, you're aesthetically not pleasing. And you have to, you know, conform to society in this certain way. Like, I don't agree with that. Right. And it all comes down to optics at the end of the day. That's the one word that can be used to like summarize this whole umbrella of things. Right. Oh, like, why does my like and, and I think it relates. I think optics are very important to face the American community, particularly compared to uh, maybe the white American community or any other ones, because. I feel like in the Indian community, like you always got to like appear a certain way, right? You got to appear like you have the nuclear family and, you know, have college educated children and have good jobs. And, you know, you, you have to look a certain way uh, for things to um, be like optically correct amongst extended family, relatives, whatever, et cetera, et cetera. That's just how it works in the Desi American community. And I don't like that. I know a lot of my peers don't like that too, because we're all different one way or another, right? Like I have friends that dress up all nice and they love wearing really nice clothes and that's great for them. But also at the same time, like maybe they want to follow their dreams of being a comedian or some shit, right? And it's like fighting that battle of, you know, there's always one battle that you have like with your parent, like with the, with your community and with your parents, I feel like as an Indian American, and I feel like my, I just have too many like clothes. Um, what else? Haircuts, uh, <laughs> podcasting. Like that's just, that's just the, uh, the cream on top of the dessert. But I mean, the point is like the optics behind being like, like, I don't, I don't get it. I don't get this whole idea of like, we have to be perfect and we have to be this and we have to be that. And this, like that conversation with my dad just spawned this whole new wave of thoughts. Like when I wear nice clothes, people say like, I feel like I'm shot. Like you should feel good, right? You should feel good when you're wearing nice clothes. You should feel mentally really good. But when I wear nice clothes, I don't feel great. Like I, I'm not, it's not like my mental health is just dragged down the drain, right? It's not like I'm full on uh, just about ready to explode, but it's like, I don't feel my myself when I'm wearing nice clothes. I'm not even going to, I'm not even going to lie, right? When I wear like loungewear, I feel good. I feel good about myself. I feel like, look, when I'm in basketball shorts and I'm walking around the house, that's like my, that's like my suit. I feel good. Like I feel, when, it's weird. It's a weird kind of mentality to have, but I feel good wearing kind of loungier clothes, more comfortable clothes. I, I don't know what that is. Like, I just don't like dressing up all that much. And, you know, to each their own, if you, if you like dressing up then yeah, you like dressing up, that's great. Like I, you know, I, I have, I have a family that loves dressing up and loves finding really nice clothes. And, you know, and I have a lot of friends that really like nice clothes, but I am not that person. And I just don't like it when people are all up in your grill that you have to be something you're not. That's just, I don't appreciate that. Um, 
And that's where I came into this whole argument of like optics and like, oh, everything has to look a certain way. Like, what the fuck? Like, no, no, it doesn't. You, I like, I can wear sweats on this podcast and be fine, right? If you, if you don't give me a view because I'm wearing fucking sweatpants, then you can go fuck off. Like, I don't need people who, like, <laughs> who are gonna watch me because I look a certain way. You know, like that's just. But I get it. It's life too, and like you know, you look better, you get more views, right? If I if I magically look like Bradley Cooper tomorrow, I might go viral. I have a better chance of going viral versus you know the way I look now. But that's just like what it is at the end of the day. You know, you have to. Uh, I'm just gonna be myself. I'm gonna be authentic, and I'm gonna attract the people that genuinely want to be here. And the people who are listening to this right now clearly want to be here, and they want to listen to my thoughts and my experiences and my stories and whatnot, whatever I have to bring to the table. So. That's what I have to feel about optics. Like, honestly, frankly, that is how I feel. Oh yeah. And I forgot to explain my uh, tagline at the bottom. If you're watching on YouTube, it says it's morning. Am I cheating? Technically I record these after shows at like 1230 or one in the morning, but it's like closer to like 1230 in the afternoon <laughs> right now on Friday. So I do apologize. I didn't record last night because I was just way too tired. It would have just been me yawning a bunch. So I figured I would, you know, wanted to put out a better quality product. So it's morning. I am cheating, but you know, am I though? Am I though? Am I cheating the viewer? Do you guys really know that it's 1230 until I told you? No, could have been one in the morning for all I know. I could have pretended, but you don't know. You don't know. That's the thing. Okay. I'm going to transition to this. Uh, we talked a little bit about optics. And so I'm going to talk a little bit about critics optics in, in the media. Um, listen, the critics are usually, I mean, I'd say somewhat correct. They have like a 60% success rate in my mind. When I go watch a movie or a TV show and I look at critic reviews and they're good or they're bad, they're usually right about 50 to 60% of the time. So I'll give them credit for about half, a little bit more than half maybe at times. But dude, dude, let me tell you where critics were completely wrong last year. There was a show that came out. I don't know how many of you guys watched it. There was a show that came out. Uh, it was about a Hawaiian vacation basically gone wrong. Uh, and it like followed a few different storylines and families and individuals at this vacation resort in Hawaii. And it was called The White Lotus. And it was written by Mike White, who is coincidentally a runner-up on Survivor. Now you know that. Now you know that the showrunner of um, The White Lotus was actually a runner-up on Survivor. I think it was David Hasselhoff, if I'm not mistaken. I think it was. Yeah. Anyway, um, he wrote this show. I, I didn't even know it was by him when I first watched it. It just looked appetizing. It was on HBO Max. Like, why not? Right? Screw it. Let's give it a shot. Critics loved it. I went back and looked at like reviews and people were talking about how this was like an Emmy nominated, an Emmy nominatable show. Like it had great acting, was just great storyline, all of this stuff. It like, you know, it, it did really well amongst the critics, amongst the LA Times. I went back and I watched it like <laughs> i went back and i watched it it was so bad i don't like the white lotus the white lotus is probably one of the most overrated shows i have seen in the past year it made no sense the the storylines were like haphazard at best and the thing that i've started to realize about tv shows for me in particular is like you have to really get into the characters if you're not into the characters there is no point of you sitting there and actually investing time into watching the tv show because they're just going to sit there and be like, oh, like, it's just going to be, just, you're just going to sit there and be, oh, like, this is just so boring. Like, you're not going to be interested. You're not going to be invested. And there's absolutely no point in watching the show. But somehow, some way, like, 
somehow, some way, like critics thought that this show, The White Lotus, was, you know, an incredible show that deserved to be Emmy nominated. I don't even think the acting was all that great. I thought there was one good character in the whole show. And he was okay. Like he's the hotel manager and he was interesting, but the show's really whack and it goes all over the place. And it's, it's just hard to follow. It's hard to like really root for any of the characters. They're all pretty much like assholes by the end. And they all just make very questionable decisions. And you kind of just leave the show. Like, why did I watch this? And they're coming out with the season two because it was so popular apparently amongst critics. I've not heard of a single person who watched The White Lotus as like a fan or like as a normal person like me and actually liked it. I would be curious to hear the White Lotus lovers out there. If you were like, you know, a big fan of the show and thought it was super good. I did not think the show was good. I thought it was just uh, like, honestly, quite, quite frankly, probably one of the worst shows I watched last year. Um, pretty half-assedly made. Uh, just really bad storylines. I, I don't know. It just, it felt very chaotic to me. It felt like the creators were trying to do too much at once. Um, and I'm going to give Mike White the benefit of the doubt. Like, you know, he's, I'm sure he's not a bad writer. I'm sure he's not bad, but like, I don't know what he was thinking writing this. I think he was like on, on drugs. That's what it really felt like watching this show. It felt like a, a show that was just on drugs, um, and made little to no sense towards the end. Um, it was just a lot of people who got a little crazy and you know and it got crazy at the end and there was a crazy ending and <laughs> it was it was weird it was just really freaking weird and um and i wasn't a big fan of the show but i i, I can see why certain individuals would like this type of show versus a maybe uh you know other sort of tv shows that are out on the air that maybe take a little bit more time to develop and fester in the viewers minds this was not it this show was not it I highly don't recommend it, but if you want to watch it, it's on HBO Max. It's called The White Lotus. Uh, it's about three different sort of parallel storylines about one being a single widowed woman, the other one being like uh, a, a newly married couple, and then the other one being like a family that's on vacation. And basically their, vaca their Hawaiian vacation goes awry. All of them, it goes awry. So that's the storyline. It's pretty pathetic. I highly wouldn't recommend it. But if you want to watch it, go for it. It's a, it's a nice, I'll give it this. It's a good, like, it's a good distraction watch in that, like, if you're doing something that requires, like, like, limited to no attention and you need to watch, like, throw on a show, The White Lotus is definitely one of those things that you can just throw on and kind of, like, you know, sort of look at occasionally when you're, you know, you're like, cleaning your room or doing your laundry, whatever, um, you know. That type of stuff. Like, it's just a nice show to have on in the background. It's nothing, you know, you have to really consistently pay attention to. That's, that's, I think that's the purpose of this show is it's a kind of a trash TV show. Yet Mike White probably made a lot of money and he's probably going to get Emmy nominated. So what do I know as the fan critic versus, you know, film critics? But like I said at the beginning of this, critics get it right 50 to 60% of the time. This was not one of those times that they got it right. This was in the minority. This was in the other half where they get things but that was the most overrated show of the year. And quite honestly, I watch a lot of TV, but there's not much else. Or, sorry, I watch a lot of TV, but I also do watch a lot of sports. And I've been thinking a lot recently about season tickets. And season tickets, dude, I've been thinking. I've really been thinking hard, long and hard about season tickets, um, particularly in the last sort of few months 
seeing the Niners success and also living at home in the Bay area and like looking at game time and finally being able to like afford some of the prices for the tickets. Um, they're cheap. They're pretty cheap. Single game tickets were not expensive this year. I don't think, uh, particularly in the back half of the season, I, I'm going to, I figure according to myself, like I'm going to live in the Bay area for quite some time. Okay. That probably after I graduate school, whenever that may be at this point, looking very, very slim, <laughs> but I, I think I'm going to be in the, I think I'm going to be in the Bay for quite a while. And I love the 49ers for those of you that know. And I've been thinking uh, that I really want to get season tickets. I think I would love to be the first person in my family to buy season tickets to something because to me, it's not only an investment in the team, but it's also more so an investment in like the community. Um, and I know that sounds really sappy and tacky and like, Oh my God, I need That's so weird. But like, I don't know. I really do feel like it would be a good move. Like, especially if I'm going to live here for a while, particularly in the Bay, uh, I think it'd be a good move to cop some season tickets because I do watch every game on TV anyway at home and I would go to a lot of them. Uh, again, that's why it makes sense because of location proximity. But for those of you that don't know what season tickets are, season tickets are essentially where you can buy a ticket to go to all eight home games. Um, and you basically like can renew that ticket every year and pay a certain fee. And then you own, and then you pay something called an SBL, which is like a state stadium license fee. And if you pay it for that fee, then you own, um, those seats for life. So you own the privileges to that seat for life and you can transfer it to someone else if needed, that type of thing. But you, your family owns that seat for life. And so it basically like, if you haven't, if you're not a, well, if you are a sports fan, you've definitely heard of those stories of like families that have had uh 49er tickets or like who, whichever team uh season tickets for like many generations. And they've just passed it down to their kids, to their kids, to their kids. And it becomes more valuable over the generations, but it's not only that, it's just the love of sport is passed down from uh, generation to generation. It's been something I've been thinking about a lot. I wouldn't, like if I were to buy those season tickets, I'd never sell. Like that would be my thing is like, I'm not trying to like quadruple my value. I'm not looking at it from a monetary investment. I'm looking at it from like a, I'm gonna buy these tickets at the age of X, Y, or Z and keep them for the rest of my life and hopefully pass them down to the next gen. That would be my goal, right? And I've been thinking a lot about it. Um, <laughs> I don't think I can afford it now. I'm still young and I'm pretty broke, but maybe in the future, um, you know, uh, somewhere later down the road, I, I might be able to buy some and I absolutely would jump at the opportunity to do so. I think it's, it's really like I have as a kid, like, let me, let me take it back for a second. Like as a kid, like I always wanted to go to games. Like that was my biggest dream, right? It was to, like go see live sporting events and growing up, I didn't go to very many, even though I lived here in the Bay area my whole life. Partially because, well, number one, I didn't have the money. And number two, like my parents didn't see the value in taking us to very many Warrior games or 49er games because they weren't into the sport themselves. So, you know, it was like, why are we doing this? This is so boring. Uh, I did go to a few Sharks games growing up because my dad's company had season passes, which was kind of cool. But not really anything due to the, with, with the Warriors and the 49ers. Like I went to a few, um, like two or three, like – and I've been a fan for how long? And I think in the last like two or three years when I've started to make money, like I've gone to way more live sporting events, which is cool because now I can spend my money on things I actually prioritize. And I've really enjoyed um, going to those live sporting events. And I, I could really see myself just continuing to, to go and go and go. And I think that's what 
like sort of got me like i've always had the dream of getting season tickets like when i had the opportunity and i had the monetary means to do so but i never really had like the thought cross my mind like oh i could legitimately do this until kind of recently where i was like looking at myself and i was like wow like i i do have money in my bank account i can't do it now but like at some point like that if it makes sense like that opportunity is getting closer and I think I'm going to be able to reach it at some point in my lifetime. You know, I thought it was unreachable for so long. And like now the the possibility of season tickets and like being able to be uh, at possibly eight home games a year uh, in the next few years might be like is right there. It's right on the horizon. And like I, I can sense it. So it's super cool. Um, and I and like I, I would never buy tickets for the for the Warriors season tickets because there's like 42 games and I don't think I got all 42 home games, particularly like on the random dates that they happen to be at. But with the Niners, like can't wait because there's only eight a year. So that's like not too bad a commitment. Uh, eight Sundays a year or Mondays or, you know, Thursday, depending on the way the schedule kind of racks out. But it's just it's very cool in that like you get to go to games. And it's, it's just like a first time for everything. It, you know, um, and it, it like every time I go to a game, I feel like a little kid. I feel like a, it's like adult Disneyland. I feel like I'm like, whoa, there's food. They're the players. The game's right there. I don't have to, I'm not watching on TV. This is so cool. Like, it's just, it, it feels awesome. And I definitely like want to have that experience for a really long time. And so that's why I've been considering season tickets recently. Sorry, I had to drink some coffee right Otherwise, I'm going to just fall out of breath being so passionate about season tickets. But can we talk about customer service for a second? Customer service. Customer customer service. Okay. Dude, if there's one thing I've learned from working in the restaurant business for like close to a year and a half, two years now, I can tell you this. Most of you guys are so mean. Okay. And I'm when I say you guys, like customers are pretty mean. Okay. And I'm not like, you know, I, I've had encountered my fair share of nice customers, of course. And I'm sure there's a few of you that are actually really nice, but like, I don't know. I think like as a person who works, like who has worked in the front and like kind of, you know, is the greeter and stuff like that at multiple different places, I can tell you that like most times customers are either really chatty or they don't talk at all. And there's no middle ground. So I was just like noticing this trend of like, either people are really nice and they like chat you up and they're like, oh yeah, you know, I'm going, this going on in my life and little Jakey's going to have his recital today and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh, cool. Like I did not need to know that, but cool. Or they're like, fuck you, make my pizza now, bitch. And it's like, whoa, <laughs> you know, like I feel like you get two different types of customers or you get the customers that are just like really quiet. And you're like, how are you? Crickets. Like, it's just like, I wish there was a middle ground. So be, I'm not trying to say like be a good customer because I'm sure there's a few of you that are nice, but be like a middle customer, you know, acknowledge the presence of us, but at the same time, like, you know, be cordial and understand that we're doing hard work. I've been lucky that at my new job here that I've been working at for the past year, I haven't really encountered that many bad customers. I really haven't. They've all been pretty nice. I've been, I've had a couple of them like, you know, just like, weird occurrences but nothing crazy but at my old job oh my god the fucking customers that you encounter <laughs> that i would encounter on a daily basis were 
I mean, crazy. I, I've, I have some stories about customers. I mean, some crazy ones. I've had people like, I've had customers who have like almost crossed the kitchen line and like tried to go back there and like, you know, get up in our face. I've had customers that have gone on nasty, like racist tirades towards like maybe coworkers of mine or even like directed at myself. I've had like DoorDash drivers get really nasty and like slam doors. Um, you know, I've had people give dirty looks, like just really, really shit. Like I feel like customer service and food can, a food service can like really bring out the worst in your customer. Um, and they just, I feel like, it's given me like a new view on people, if that makes sense of like, wow, like people really aren't as empathetic as you may think. Uh, some of them are really nice. Like, don't get me wrong. There are very nice customers out there and you guys, I mean, shout out to you, but there are also some really big assholes. And the thing is, you would be surprised at who it is. It's not necessarily like the old men that you think, or like, you know, like the, the guys that are just like, look like assholes, like they give you the asshole vibe. It's like, it can be anybody. It can just be like a regular dude who's having a bad day and he's projecting all your, all his emotion on you. And there would be days that I would come back from my old job and just be like drained and not because of like the physical work that I was doing, but more so like the actual toll that it takes to deal with these fucking customers. It was, it was, it was rough, dude. It, it would little, it would make you like question your life decisions at certain points. I mean, truly speaking, it, it was tough. It was tough. Like I, I can't even lie. Um, and it's, like, yeah, I, I've had some really bad ones. I can tell those stories on another day. Um, but like younger, like typically younger people are actually really good at it. So like people who usually are watching this podcast, like in your 20s, they're not bad people. It's typically like the ones who are like just out of their 20s and like fully settling down who are like, they're they're the worst. They can be really bad um, and kind of assholes. So yeah, definitely just, you know, look out for who you are being, look out for your presence as like a customer. I think it's just a good PSA. I think I'm speaking on behalf of a lot of food service workers, people who work at Starbucks, coffee shops, restaurants, bars, whatever. Just be nice. Just be nice. Be cordial. And I feel like if you're nice, it will be reciprocated in, in a certain way. Uh, I've seen that happen before too. And like you are nice to like me or my coworkers will make things a little extra nice or maybe we'll add a little extra something on there you know, or maybe, uh, you know, we'll treat you a little better. Like, I don't know. It, it just, I feel like kindness goes a long way in the world. Um, and I, I really have believed that having worked one of these jobs for like an extended period of time, if you're nice and you're empathetic and you're sweet, it comes back to you. And I feel like, I don't know, you should just be nice to the people that are making you food unless they're mean. If they're mean, then like, yeah, mean being, you can, you know, I guess don't be mean to them, but just be like, you know, you could be a little distant, but if they're nice to you, be nice back. And I'm telling you, they would really appreciate it. Anyway, can we talk about this? I've been, I've been thinking about this recently. Bipartisanship might be closer to happening than we think. And you're thinking like, and you, you're the one who's been preaching partisanship since it started. Like, this is such a lie. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Okay, hold on, hold on. Hold up, people. When I was doing research for that emergency Changavi mini show that I dropped the other day, um, for the potential candidates for the 2024 election, uh, for the presidential spot, 
I came upon 538 stats and I love 538 statistics. Like, oh my gosh, now that we're in the 2022, like midterms election cycle, I get to get all 538 nerd on you motherfuckers. You guys get ready, get ready. I love looking through 538 stats. It's like one of my secret hobbies that I hide from everybody. Okay. So I was looking at 538 and I was, you know, looking, 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 and there's this particular graph where you can um, look at how certain politicians are voting with compared to the president's voting record. And I found some astounding results. Astounding, astounding results. I want you guys to like take a second and I'm gonna ask you a question and I want you to take like five seconds, maybe pause the video and think of a number in your head because I'm gonna ask you a question. I want you to like think of a number, okay. A percentage, actually, not a number. So how many percent, how much percent of the time, sorry for the bad grammar, how much percent of the time do you think that Joe Biden, right, Democratic president right now, and Mitch McConnell, former Speaker of the House, former Trump's right-hand man, very right Republican, vote together or in unison? What is the percentage that you think that Joe Biden and Mitch McConnell vote together or agree on a particular issue. Five seconds. Okay. You want to know what that number is? 60% of the time. They vote together upwards of 60% of the time. Joe Biden and Mitch McConnell, who by the media or portrayed to be political rivals, vote together a majority of the time. Mitt Romney votes with Joe Biden 70 upwards of 70 68% of the time okay 68% almost 70% of the time Mitt Romney and Joe Biden vote together there are other republicans that also vote upwards of like 65 most of them vote upwards of 60 to 65% of their votes to, with Joe Biden together it's crazy it's crazy i was shocked when i saw this i was like wait what's like i feel like we've been taught partisan politics recently this is pretty insane. AOC, AOC, who you guys consider to be your left queen, okay? Super left, like she won't settle for anything besides a progressive agenda. Joe Biden's a Democrat. Guess how much percent of the time that AOC and Joe Biden vote together? Yes, just have a number in your head. According to 538, they vote together 92% of the time. 92% of the time they vote together. Clearly AOC is not the socialist, uh, you know, stand for nothing uh, but my policy type gal. She's voting with Joe Biden 92% of the time. And clearly Mitch McConnell is not as Republican as we thought if he's voting with Joe 60% of the time. Bipartisanship might be closer than we think, guys. It might be a lot closer than you think. And it's kind of shocking because you, you were taught that there's such partisan narratives right now. You know, it's like, oh, it's, I, it's the Democrats versus the Republicans and no one wants to work together. But clearly, if you have Republicans who are voting upwards of 60% of their votes in the Senate with Joe Biden, then I don't see how bipartisanship isn't possible because Mitch McConnell is a 60-40 vote right now. And... There is ways to get like compromise, 
compromise exists, guys. It's a thing. It really happens. And I don't know. It was just a thought that I had uh, recently when I saw that statistic. I was shocked. It took me a while to process it, but I was like, maybe we are close to bipartisanship. Maybe there is some level of bipartisanship that's happening within the House or the Senate. Sorry, my mic is being a little, little But maybe there is some level of bipartisanship that's happening in the Senate or in the House or whatever. And we, oh my Lord, I hate, I hate this freaking thing. Um, my setup sucks. Sorry. But there is some level of bipartisanship that is happening. And I think that's just something to keep in mind. I just found it very interesting. Um, bipartisanship might be happening. It, there's no statistical evidence as to like this being true, but 538, man, Nate Silver, Nate Silver is reporting this fact. And Nate Silver is my king. Nate Silver is like the stat king. And he might be right. He might be correct if if he, he might be noticing some trends that like maybe bipartisanship is a media thing now. Or maybe bipartisanship is actually happening, but we don't know about it because the media keeps telling us the other thing. So I'm here to tell you, look out for bipartisanship. It might be a thing. Anyway, no one wants to work hard, guys. No one wants to work hard anymore. I've noticed this. Everyone that I meet is like, hey, man, nice to meet you. I'm so-and-so. I'm just trying to get like an SWE internship at fucking Facebook and sit there for the rest of my life and not do anything. I'm just trying to work for the company, you know? Settle, settle, settle. And I'm just like, dude, 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 why don't you want to work hard? No, I'm kidding. Okay, that's not the type of grind I'm saying. No one wants to work hard for information anymore. And this is what I've noticed right? Everybody is just clinging to what information is easy to access. They're not willing to do the hard yards and dig for the actual information that's going on about current events. That's my job. That's what I'm supposed to do for you guys. So you guys, all you have to do is click on the show, like, and subscribe, follow me on all social media platforms, and then I'll do all the hard work for you and just narrate. And you guys can just listen. But no, for real though, like no one is really, this is what I've noticed in this industry. No one wants to work hard. No one wants to work hard to find the actual information that's happening, whether that be in the Ethiopian civil war, whether that be with um, different narratives going on in politics, whether that be for looking at different statistics, organizations, like different things that are considered to be um, news headlines. No one wants to really look into it. There's this guy, Marcus Diopola. He's considered like the TikTok news king. And I was like, maybe I can take some inspiration for him. So I like looked at his thing his TikTok page. And it's literally just like everybody like zoomed in on his, it's like the camera's super zoomed in on his face and he's just narrating news events. And I'm like, this dude has 3 million followers, 3 million followers on TikTok. And all he's doing is just narrating a fucking CNN article. I was like, dude, how does this guy have views? He doesn't do any work. I'm literally like listening to his analysis of the event and there is no source material quoted. There is no research done because his take is CNN's take. There's no, he's a TikTok news king, but he's providing zero analysis on the event. It's just cut and dry. Anderson Cooper, boom, right into him. I'm so freaking done with this, dude. People get like, I'm like, all right, dude, if you're, if you're going to be the cut and dry, cut and paste, dude fuck you. I'm going to make my, I'm going to do my own work. I'm going to like, you know, do my work, work hard, do the research, and then actually provide you some decent analysis compared to these other fools in every department. I've noticed this in pop culture in um, pop culture, sports, everything. No one wants to put in the work. 
No one wants to put in the work. They're really good at just like stating facts. That's why when Mina Kimes goes on ESPN, sorry to bring in sports, but so, when Mina Kimes pops up on ESPN and says an actual fact about our quarterback, James Richard Garoppolo, saying that he is the kid in the group project that does nothing and still takes credit for getting an A, everyone gets mad at her. But her take is backed up by statistics. She did the hard work. She looked at the 49ers. She actually saw the trends that were happening. But the national media wants to believe, oh, Jimmy G, ah, oh, he's a cute quarterback. He's good looking. He wins. Oh, he has to be good. <sighs> I think the truth is it's somewhere in the middle. But I personally tend to agree with Mina, but I think the truth is somewhere in the middle. Like, you know, he does win a lot of games. But like, okay, we can get into that later. But no one wants to work hard in, like, when they get to, like, those big positions. You look at a lot of the journalists, journalists, White House correspondents, people who are, you know, in, in positions of power, in positions of access with journalism. Like, a lot of the people who work in the White House aren't necessarily, like, the hardest working people to give you a take. Their thing is, like, we're just going to, like, copy-paste information that we hear from Jen Paskey, who's the White House press secretary, and report it live on TV, and that's a job. We call it a day. There's no analysis there. No one wants to dig deeper. And I'm like, okay, listen, people don't want to work. Like, I feel like people, no one wants to work hard for information anymore. And the consumer doesn't want to work hard either. So I'm like, all right, here's my, I think I found my role. I'm just going to work harder than everybody else get all the information I possibly can get and provide actual analysis. That's what I've realized is like the, my niche in this industry um, of like breaking down content is access accessibility is so important, but also like really digging in and finding where you can provide value in the industry where you can show people how much work you've put into this take and people don't realize like beyond those like minute TikTok videos I put out about Steven Breyer or about, um, you know, I did a whole episode about Afghanistan. People don't realize the hours and hours of articles that I read on BBC, The Guardian, New York Times, Washington Post, um, every single thing. Like, I'm reading, 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 taking notes, reading more, looking at books, articles, uh, different things. Like, it's a lot of fucking work to do this. It's not easy. And so I just, like, want to make that very clear that – you put in if you put it you have to put in the hard hard work if like to get that take out and to actually get a take with full analysis rather than like these national media copy pasters that's why mainstream media is really freaking annoying because they just copy paste each other there's no uh that's why local reporters are low-key better they they can just do a better job at like communicating that information it's, it's just it's way better it's, yeah that's what i have to say that's my rant about the national media and mainstream media and how they provide a lack of analysis. I'm not saying they're not hardworking people. I'm sure they are. You had to work hard to get to the national media. To get to be a columnist at the Washington Post, you have to put in a lot of work. But once you get there, I feel like people get a little lax. And they don't do the digging that they used to do. In my opinion. In my personal opinion. If any like New York Times reporter wants to come in here and just blast me on Twitter, that's cool too. I'm down. But anyway. People should put in the work. That's my can we talk about how I met your father for a second? I remember I talked about the show on an after show like five weeks ago or something. And I noticed that I did some research and I found out that it was going to be the sequel. Not the sequel, but like a spinoff of How I Met Your Mother. And so when I saw it come on Hulu, of course, I was really excited. I was like, I have to go check this out. And I looked at it 
and I watched three episodes, and I have a take. I have an interesting take. I think, and I was reading through a lot of the critic reviews, so I read through the Hollywood Reporter's review, and Variety, and um, Complex, and a few others, and they were basically all saying the same thing. This show misses Barney Stinson. That is the fact. That is their take. Every, every, like I said, all the news outlets are copying each other. They're saying, oh, Barney Stinson's gone. That's the take of the show, basically, and I feel like I feel like that's a basic take to have because I think, yes, that is, and to an extent, one of the problems that is happening with this show. Barney Stinson is gone. But also, no one is actually stating the, the obvious here, in my opinion, the obvious take in this situation. And the obvious take in this situation, in this particular show, is the way the show is structured. Let me explain. Some of the greatest sitcoms of our era, Hi, I Met Your Mother, New Girl, The Big Bang Theory are all shows with groups, ensemble casts, groups of friends, for the most part, right? Let's take New Girl, for example. What's, what is the commonality between New Girl, The Big Bang Theory, and How I Met Your Mother? Well, they're all, they're all friend groups. They're all friend groups. Okay, but what is the commonality between the friend groups? They've all known each other for a certain amount of time. Okay, so let me explain for a second. In New Girl, the pilot episode, you bring in Jess into the fold of the loft. But Nick, Schmidt, and Coach have known each other already for years. There is a background there. There is inside jokes. There is tendencies. There is already a built relationship that the writers have crafted. And Jess is just joining that relationship. You're adding one character and Cece. So you're adding two characters into the fold. But you already have a foundational just set. You have the foundation set you're building on it, right? Look at How I Met Your Mother. Ted, Marshall, Barney, and Lily are already a group of four. They're a group of four. The first episode centers around how Ted is basically falling in love with Robin, and then she comes to become the fifth. So you're adding another member to the ensemble. You look at the Big Bang Theory. Leonard, Howard, and Raj are all friends. But then you add, and, and Sheldon to a certain extent, not really, but yeah, he's there. So the four of them know each other. There's a prior relationship. There's a background that's being built. And then you add Penny. And then there you go. That's your ensemble. That's your group cast. So what this show does, How I Met Your Father, I'm going to kind of spoil the first two minutes. They're trying to do that same thing, except here's what they're doing. So there's a pair of best friends over here in land A that know each other. They have a prior relationship and they've known each other for a while. And then you have part B of the best friends that know each other and they're unrelated best friends. So they're like parallel universes. So they're best friends. They know each other. They have a group. They're best friends. They know each other and they have a group. And then the boyfriend of one of the friends here is suddenly added the new boyfriend. So they don't haven't known each other for a while. Um, or so they haven't known each other for that long. So he's new, right? So that's another character who's randomly new. And then the two best friends in the parallel universes come to join each other. And so they're all new. And then there's like a sister of a uh, of one of the best friends in parallel universe B that also joins this group. I know it's incredibly confusing when I explain it now. But when you watch the show, it makes sense. The point is all of these people are new. There's no existing relationships between the core. There's no foundational setup. All of this group is pretty much new people coming together and meeting for the first time. And I get it. 
they're trying to break that whole sitcom stereotype of like, oh, it's best friends who've known each other for years. And then, you know, we're finally recording them starting at this X date. Yes, that is fair. But also in this quick twitch society that we live in, shows will get canceled. All right. Maybe in 2004, you could have gotten away with this because it takes time to develop experiences and the relationship and flesh out all the stories of these characters and then build out the universe and then build your foundation. That takes seasons to do. I don't know if Hulu is willing to wait two seasons of poor ratings for this show to finally pick up at season three and then go on. That's what I'm noticing early on. There is no foundation built between these characters. There's no chemistry between the cast, like not in a bad way, but there's just no, um, it's not immediate with friends with how I'm with new girl, with how I met your mother, with the big bang theory, the the chemistry is built because these guys have known each other for automatic, like synergy between the guys, between the girls, between the whole cast. And you're adding one member of the on uh, to the ensemble. So it doesn't really like change the balance of things here. You're just creating the on. you're showing the creation of the ensemble right there. So it's, it's hard. It's hard to be able to do that and get away with it and write multiple seasons. So I feel like that's the take that should be talked about is not Barney Stinson's missing because yes, that, I mean, Barney Stinson's an iconic character and he's super funny, but you're missing the foundation of the show. You're missing the foundation. You're missing the characters actually having that chemistry and that, that, uh, that synergy flowing through the scenes. You're missing that. And that's, well, wow, there's a lot more. <laughs> that's quite honestly, like the main point of, uh, that I had when it came to this show. Like, it's just like, it's right there. You just have to like, look a little deeper. Like what is the foundational, um, piece to this whole thing? And that's how I feel about how I met your brother, father so far. Sorry. It's, it's got potential. The characters are interesting. They are kind of flat, but they're interesting. It, you can overcome these characters if you have a cast that actually like really gets gets on together, right? Like gets like has that chemistry and just, you know, flows. You don't have that yet. You're building that up. And it's going to take a few seasons and a few episodes. Just keep going, keep going, keep going. But eventually it'll hit. I'm telling you. But it's the thing is, is Hulu going to have the patience to keep the show on the on the air? Because if Hulu doesn't have the patience to keep the show on the air, then yeah, you're done. Yeah, this show is going to be ended two seasons because the people, I, I don't think consumers are liking it so far because they went in with different expectations. They went in with the assumption that this is going to be the next time at your mother for Gen Z, but it's not that way. It's not, it's going to be, it's going to take its time. It's going to develop and it's going to take a little bit. So it's going to build and build and build and build and build. And if Hulu allows it that time to build, it's going to be great. I, I have no, I have all the confidence in the world that it'll be really good. But if Hulu doesn't give it time to build, and if it doesn't get the numbers that it's expecting and the ratings that it's expecting and Hulu shuts it down after a year, then yeah, sorry. <laughs> I don't think that this is going to uh, last a while. But okay, I have a few more topics, okay, to get through here. We're 47 minutes, so I'm going to get through them quickly. Yearbook signatures. Okay, this was just something I was thinking about the other day, um, honestly. like I was, I was going back and looking through my old yearbook in high school, the old yearbooks in high school. It's been like four years since I graduated high school, kind of, I think. I can't do math. <laughs> Something along those lines. But it's been a while. And I was thinking to myself, I was like, what if I open these yearbooks up in like 20 years and like half of the people that sign these are like famous celebrities and like models or like, you know, 
um, freaking actors or actresses or like, you know, business owners or like just Silicon Valley geniuses. I was like, bro, that'd be so lit. I could sell these pages. I have the signatures of like famous people. Like imagine the people who went to high school with like Steph and they're like, Steph, sign my yearbook. And Steph is like, hags, bro, have a great summer, Steph Curry. And now you have Steph Curry's signature in your yearbook for life, right? I, I bet you there are like random people who went to high school with like super famous people, right? So like there's people who went to high school, you know, in LA with Clay or with uh, with Russell Westbrook. I'm, I'm, I'm talking sports stars. Maybe like you went to high school with like Leonardo DiCaprio or Hillary Duff or I'm just listing random people off the top of my head. Tom Cruise, right? You went to some LA high school with all these schools. Jimmy Tatro. Like you went to high school with them and you have your their their kind of signature or their paragraph or whatever they wrote about you in the yearbook. That's sick. That's so cool. Th that's just like a memory that you'll have for life. It's a personalized message that probably with, you know, these really big celebrities is like right now is probably worth a shit ton of money. And you just have it sitting there in your high school yearbook. You just have to dust it off and then boom, you have it. That's kind of cool. I was just thinking about that. I was like, I hope someone in my high school makes it. Um, and I can, you know, look back and I'm like, oh my God, I have a personalized message from freaking Matt. Like Matt made it, dude. Now Matt's huge. And I've got his yearbook signature or I got freaking Matty's yearbook signature. I don't know who it's going to be, but we'll see. We will see. I hope people from my high school make it because then my yearbook's going to be worth hell of money. I can make it into an NFT. As Gary Vee likes to say, make everything in your life into an NFT. Make your face an NFT. I'm making this podcast an NFT. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Should I make every episode an NFT and sell it for like $5 billion uh, like 10 years from now? Maybe. Maybe. Maybe that's the overall big plan that I've had with this. Okay. This one I'm going to do really quickly. I'm spending a lot of money now. No, I'm not. <laughs> I'm spending more money than I usually did. When I first started making money, I would save every single penny. I would like each Chipotle like once a month. And I was like, oh, that's my cheap purchase. But now I'm getting comfortable with the idea that I have money in my account. And so I'm like, okay, I can relax. And I can spend a little bit here and drop a little bit on this jersey because I have earned it. It's my money. I have earned it. And I'm so lucky and so, 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 so blessed that I live with my parents and I don't have to worry about rent. That is something I have to not worry about right now. That is great. That's fantastic. So I'm spending, I'm, I'm learning this whole balance of like spending my money, but also not regretting it because I used to like every time I'd spend a penny, I'd cringe and I'd cry and I'd have nightmares for two days about how one cup of coffee is going to cost me like my life. Right now I'm at the stage where I'm like, <laughs> maybe, maybe not. I don't know. I still have bad financial anxiety and we'll, I'll talk about it a little bit on another episode. Like financial anxiety is probably one of my biggest anxieties that in the future. Those are my two biggest worries probably in the world. Am I going to have enough money and am I going to be okay? That's it. Those are the only two things I worry about, really, to be honest. Everything else can like, you know, okay, <laughs> it's an obstacle. But those are my two main worries. But I'm, I'm working on my financial anxiety and I'm really proud of myself for like even spending little bits of money because that's like big for me. Like, I know it's not good to spend money, but I mean, like I, I, very little. Like little bits, like it's, it's, I was like the ultimate saver, like save 99.99999% of your money and only spend 0.1% on the podcast and that's it. But now I'm just like, okay, like I can loosen that up a little bit. You know, I can treat myself to things because I've worked for this money and I have stuff saved and I am good with my money and I know how to balance. 
but it's still a hard process to like unlearn those tendencies, but it is what it is. Okay. Now I'm going to talk about the last topic of the day, the topic you've all been waiting for, because I mentioned it at the beginning of the show. Anuj, what is your NFC championship prediction? Ladies and gentlemen, for those of you that don't know, the San Francisco 49ers are playing the NFC championship this weekend. They're playing the Los Angeles Rams, a full California battle that is set to take place at SoFi Stadium at 3.30 p.m. on Sunday afternoon. It is going to be epic. A lot of 49er fans are traveling from Northern California or from all over the country to go to this game in L.A. because it's one of the biggest games of the year. You win this game, you go to the Super Bowl. You lose this game, you're out. It is. This is all the marbles. For all the marbles right here, to represent the NFC and the Super Bowl. This is it. This is fucking it right here. And I cannot... I'll admit it to you. I was not confident that this team would make the Super Bowl a mere three months ago. But now here they are, one game away. And I'm a huge fan of this team. As you know, I haven't missed a game in like 10 years. Or, sorry, like 14, 15 years, I think, from being a fan. I haven't missed a game. And I'm so excited. I'm beyond excited. I've been playing blasting music all day. Beat LA, beat LA, beat LA. I was at the first LA game this year, and they won. And I watched the second game as I was on the way to Clay Day, and they won on a game-winning interception. This game is going to be just as close as that second game because the LA Rams came to play in that second game. Matthew Stafford was playing lights out for two quarters. It's going to be tough. It is going to be tough to beat the Los Angeles Rams. Not easy. But my prediction, and if it's right, it's right. I picked it last week for the Niners uh, by this score for uh, against Green Bay. And I picked them to win. So I, I got that right. I didn't get the score right. But I'm going to pick the same score for this week. And I'm picking the Niners. 27-24. San Francisco is going to the Super Bowl in Los Angeles. Same place that it's taking – the NFC Championship is taking place. We are going uh, – the Red Sea is going to take over so far. The faithful are all going to be there. I cannot wait for Sunday afternoon. I have been excited. It's the one place I'd rather be besides the Bay Area on Sunday afternoon is SoFi Stadium in Los Angeles. And believe me, believe me when I say this, I thought about buying that $500 ticket and somehow hitchhiking my way to Los Angeles this weekend to go to that game. I thought about it. It was a thought that crossed my mind and said, might as well just fuck around and spend all my money now before I you know, ever earn any money. I thought about it. I had a feeling. I had a thought. I had a thought about doing it, about going to L.A., but no one wanted to go with me, and I have no ride, and I don't have a license, so I cannot go to L.A., unfortunately. But also, no one that I know has the money to do so. It's incredibly difficult. Uh, I'm, you know, But one day, when I get the money, I can do spontaneous things like this. And a license. And a license. I need a license. But one day, man, maybe I'll make it to an NFC championship on the road. We'll see. We'll see. But that's a thought. For a distant universe, when the Changavi show actually uh, is making an impact on the world. But anyway, that's all I got, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so, so much. And other people. Thank you so, so much for tuning in, everybody. I really appreciate every single one of you. Um, 
If you guys like this episode and you're on YouTube, go ahead and like and subscribe. If you're on Spotify, go ahead and hit that follow button. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, feel free to leave me a review. And you can leave me whatever star review you like. If it was shitty, give me a one-star review. If it was great, give me a five-star review. You know the deal. You know the drill. Follow me everywhere on social media. All the links are going to be posted in all the descriptions. So it's uh, Linktree uh, slash The Changabi Show. And you can find me on every social media platform, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, at The Changabi Show, posting clips pretty much daily on TikTok and sharing them daily on Instagram. Those are the two I'm most active on. I'm trying to be better on Twitter. I'm not, though. Um, and I promise I'm, I'm, I need to be better on Twitter. I, I'll figure out some way to be more active on Twitter. But anyway, thank you so, so much. I really appreciate every single one of you. Uh, for tuning in and for getting this far. You guys are the best. Uh, 56 minutes on the after show, not bad. And uh, again, this is the after show. It's more uncut. It's more raw. It's more me singing songs at the end of the episode. And that's it. And that's it. Go enjoy your weekend, everybody. Go watch this NFC Championship. It's going to be a lot of fun. Hopefully they win. If they do, I'm going to freaking be so happy. If they lose, then, you know, I'll be sad, but I'll get over it, hopefully. Um, So let's see. Let's see what happens. But big Bay Area sports weekend. Um, uh, the Niners, I think we got a Warriors game too tomorrow. So, no. Yeah, Warriors tomorrow. So, that should be against the Nets, which is going to be fun. So, a lot of stuff happening this weekend. A lot of things going on. Uh, go enjoy your weekend. If you're not into sports, ignore me completely and go, you know, frolic in the meadow like you do or record a Shakespeare play. I don't know what you guys do. But anyway, have a great day. This is Anuj Changavi signing off from his parents' house. The Changavi After Show 6 in the books. Peace.